0: Well, we're back in the Gospel of John, so let's transition to that here. So if your Bibles turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Last week, we looked at the first 17 verses of the chapter, and this week, my plan is to finish the chapter and even a few verses into chapter 16. And what better way to celebrate coming together unified as a church in one service and then talk about how the world hates us, so... WE'RE GOING TO BE UNIFIED TOGETHER. BUT I WANT TO READ THE ENTIRE CHAPTER AND THEN A FEW VERSES IN CHAPTER 16 AS WE BEGIN THIS MORNING. SO IF YOU HAVE YOUR BIBLES, FOLLOW WITH ME AS I READ. JESUS SAYS IN VERSE 1, I AM THE TRUE VINE, AND MY FATHER IS THE VINE DRESSER. EVERY BRANCH IN ME THAT DOES NOT BEAR FRUIT HE TAKES AWAY, AND EVERY BRANCH THAT DOES BEAR FRUIT HE PRUNES, THAT IT MAY BEAR MORE FRUIT. ALREADY YOU ARE CLEAN BECAUSE OF THE WORD THAT I HAVE SPOKEN TO YOU. ABIDE IN ME AND I IN YOU. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the father my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of the sin. But now they have seen and hated me and my father. the word is written in their law must be fulfilled they hated me without a cause but when the helper comes whom i will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning now in the chapter 16 verse 1 i have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away they will put you out of the synagogues indeed the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I've read this text, this chapter many times in my life. Even as a kid, I remember reading this, and and when it turns in verse 18 to persecution, I seem to shut it off, thinking that this is for someone else. You know, this, this, this must be addressed to someone else. You know, the verse 17, first 17 verses is good. I, I want to I land there. This is encouraging. This, this gives me hope. And so I get to verse 18 and say, eh, we'll go to verse chapter 16 now. It must be for another person. You know, I have great memories growing up in church. I don't remember a time I wasn't in church. You know, great, I owe a great debt to my parents for, for, for bringing me up and, and understanding the gospel. And I remember being in a church, being warmly welcomed by the church and greeted by old people who must have been 200 and 300 years old. <laughs> people who taught me and loved me and encouraged me and pushed me to, to walk with God, to love him. And I remember in early college, sensing the call of God, in my life to be a pastor and through many opportunities to serve and to preach in the church. And I remember hearing from the elders and the pastor of the church and their affirmation of this call. But I don't remember any opposition. There was no one outside the church picketing my calling to ministry. There wasn't an angry mob waiting for me when I walked out. It was just joy and excitement for whatever God would take me. It didn't seem to be anyone who hated me. So by the grace of God and many miles that God has allowed me to serve him, I'm here. It's my job, my duty, my pleasure to prepare us as a congregation for life and for ministry. And part of this preparation is for you to leave this place knowing that the world hates you. You know, I didn't really feel the sting of dislike until we got to safe, mild Sweden. You know, they don't hate anyone, it didn't seem like. But when they found out I was a Christian and why I was there, I wouldn't say hate, I would say dislike. People didn't like Christians, Even in a country that seemingly doesn't care one bit about religion, they didn't care for me. Now, this passage may not seem real to you as you sit here this morning in a a comfortable seat, maybe even drinking some coffee. It may not seem real that this world in which you live might someday kill you because you're following Christ, because you represent him. It, It may be, right now, people surrounding you in life, your coworkers, your neighbors, your acquaintances, if they really knew what you believed, how you lived, WHAT YOU DID ON SUNDAY BETWEEN NINE AND NOON, THAT THEY MAY HATE YOU. AND MAYBE IT WOULDN'T BUBBLE OUT TO THE POINT WHERE THEY WOULD TRY TO TAKE YOUR LIFE, BUT MAYBE IT JUST RESULTS IN A LOSS OF PRIVILEGE, A LOSS OF RESPECT IN THE COMMUNITY OR IN YOUR WORKPLACE. SOCIAL CAPITAL REALLY IS WHAT IT IS. YOU KNOW, WE'RE, we're ALL LOOKING to, TO GAIN THAT, WHETHER WE KNOW IT OR NOT. Social capital in many forms, right? We get it through our workplace, our friends, social media. And the more you have, the more respect you have. But if you, my friend, look to attend and then join a Bible-believing church like ours, you'll be losing, actually spending, social capital faster than you can get it back. If you want to keep your social capital, then just look like the world. Talk like the world. Be like the world. And you'll fool them. You'll keep your social capital and and you will most likely avoid the hate that Jesus talks about here in this text. But as you see earlier in the Gospel of John and and the other Gospels, you'll be losing so much more than that. In fact, you'll be forfeiting your soul to save faith, to keep the world happy with you. In this passage here this morning, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what the world will look like following his death and resurrection. He's in He's teaching them, and he's instructing us. And as I said, I want to cover the last half of this chapter. There's three main points that I want to cover. The first is the world hates us, plain and simple. The world, the people that make up this culture that surrounds us, they hate Christians. This is most definitely not soft and fuzzy. And most maybe cringe at this thought. Second, I want to cover the reason why the world hates us. There are two reasons why the world hates, and the two reasons that I'll cover is that we belong to Jesus, and Jesus exposes their sin. Just like John 3.20, and I'll talk about it later, he writes, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. And the last point I want to cover is our response to this hate. How do we respond to this? And the text here, we're to witness and where to be ready. Simple outline, praying that the Spirit will teach us as we go through. And why don't you join me in a prayer now as we begin? Father, I thank you for today. I thank you that we can join together as the body of Christ here this morning. I thank you for this sobering passage. Thank you for what it teaches us and shows us about this world in which we live. God, I ask that you would be the teacher here this morning, that you would be our guide to bring understanding to our hearts and our minds. Instruct us today. May we learn from your word. May we be encouraged in the midst of seeing and understanding this difficult passage, but also convicted in ways in which we live and think. May we leave this place different than we came in. May we serve you faithfully. Father, help me this morning to communicate your word. May your people hear from you this morning. For I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. first thing i want you to see is as we see in verse 18 the world hates us jesus says if the world hates you know that it's hated me before it hated you this this world doesn't like us and if the world does like you you might have issues with jesus as believers we can detect a growing hostility from the culture if we're listening if we're watching And the question that comes from every angle is, how does a Christian engage a culture that is around them? It's a good question to ask. We know that that culture is important, and this is why when missionaries land in a new country and new customs, new languages, they come as learners to find out why people do what they do, what drives them. Why do they do that? This doesn't make sense to my culture, so why do they do that? And the next natural step for many missionaries is to go in and translate the scriptures into their language we don't take our English Bible into their culture and expect them to learn our language. No, we, we take the word and translate it into their language because that's the standard for understanding who God is. And, but the hazard is that, that Christians begin to believe that culture is too important. They begin to focus too much attention on ways to engage the culture. If we can just get clever enough, if we can just adapt enough, then we can reach them, then, then we can help them instead of wanting to transform them. We believe if we do this and this and this, the world will will then maybe adapt to us. But usually in those situations, that's not what happens. The world doesn't change, we do. We become more like the world. It's been since the Upper Room Discourse here in these chapters Been the same when jesus instructed the men it's the same now we want normal but it's not and even what is normal and our job as believers as aliens in this world is not to make this world our home this isn't our home it was never our job to do this there have been many lies that have been floating around when we come to the discussion of culture. And one of them that floats to the top is that, that we can be at peace with this world. That we can be at peace with society. And that they can be at peace with us. We, we hear this in the news, right? We, we, we want peace. Now, that's the key, right? To, to live and not live. Why why can't they just let us be? This is not gonna happen, it's a a myth. And we begin to believe this culture is neutral. That's a myth, it's not neutral. Never has been, never will be. This culture, this world is opposed to God. And will always be that way until Jesus comes back. And we need to understand this, we need to remember this as Christians. Our job is not to make this culture love Christians or the church because they never will. There has to be a heart change, a relationship, a replanting from the world to Christ. You know, another myth that you hear is the myth of influence. We, We think that if we can just get deeper into the culture, more involved in the culture, maybe if more Christians would make movies or more Christians make music or art, or more Christians get more positions in government, or the police force, or local government, then then people will finally begin to respect us. Now, those things aren't bad. We do need more Christian filmmakers, and more Christian musicians, and more Christian artists, and more Christians in, in the police force and in government. We do need that. But that's not going to make this culture respect us. It's a myth. Do you really believe that the culture will respect the cross? Do you think they will respect us if we just then had a speaking voice? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to the world. This gospel that I believe, that you believe, this gospel is, is just silliness to those that are dying. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to those that God has not chosen in this world will not think better of you if you just get more involved, more positions, more connected. It doesn't work that way. So we need to realize this morning as Christians that this world doesn't like us. Second is why. The reason why the world hates. Why is it? The 1st subpoint of that is that we belong to Jesus. Jesus says in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates us. All right, we said this in verse 18. It says again in verse 19. It begins there in verse 18 with an if. And if. Actually, there's a few of them listed out through this passage. Those are not there as if he's asking a question or even a hypothetical. It's a statement of fact. Better stated, it's since. Since the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And why does the world hate us? Because we belong to Jesus. We are citizens of another country. Jesus is talking to believers here who are now different. Why are we different? Well, we just talked about that last week in the first 17 verses. I read it earlier. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, remain in me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And he says, you are my friends. We're different. And And as believers, church, we're new. We are more radical than the rest of the world. And we need to understand this profound change that has happened inside of us when Jesus saves us. Something happens to us. The very life of heaven enters into our life. And your relationship to this world and anyone else that has not had that experience, the, the life of God coming to reside in them means that they're very different than us. your your, your relationship to the world, your old family, your old country, your old homeland has changed. This, This world is no longer our homeland. Your citizenship has changed. There's a profound difference between Christians who are now citizens of heaven and those that are still citizens of this world. And why do you need to hear this this morning? Because I believe there are some of you here this morning and you're considering christianity and you're trying to figure out this this thing and you're, you're thinking maybe how does this fit into my life what, what would i have to give up what would i have to change how, how can this just fit into how life is going now so that i can be a christian And you need to understand that this is a radical change. This is not just a lifestyle change. But this is an all-encompassing life change. You are changed from the inside out. It's a change of nature. It's a change of citizenship. It's a change of dimension. You are transferred to another country, to a new world. And now your relationship to this world is, is very different. You're in Jesus now. And because you're in Jesus, we should expect hostility and persecution. And and not because you're a jerk. Don't be a jerk. That's not what he's saying here. You know, Paul, writing in 2 Timothy 3.12, says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted those who are living a Christian life, who are godly, who who flat out live a life of faithfulness to Jesus, it's inevitable that you will arouse confusion from the world. And in many cases, you will bring out hostility from people who are around you who are not in Jesus, who are not rooted in him. And they will hate the way you live because you live differently than them. We will just live around them and they will feel like they will feel like we're judging them. Has anyone experienced this before? Ever even heard the question, I feel like you're judging me? We haven't said a word to them. We just live differently than them. We're in Jesus. We're rooted in him. And why do people, why do the world have so much trouble with us as Christians? It's because of the gospel. That's the only reason. Now some in our world have brought, brought out anger and hostility from the world not because of the truth of the gospel but because of their hobby horse issues or their their feigned morality. But let me be clear friends this hatred that Jesus is talking about here isn't because your opinion is different than other worlds it isn't because you think we should be more conservative no this hatred is here because we preach the truth of the gospel and the world hates it. You know, John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I must be the life. That means I have to be the reason you live. He says, I'm not not a help for your career. I'm the reason for your career. I'm not a help for your life. I'm the reason for life. I HAVE TO BE THE VERY REASON YOU GET UP IN THE MORNING. I HAVE TO BE FIRST IN YOUR LIFE. AND THE WORLD HATES THAT. AND THEN HE SAYS, I HAVE TO BE THE TRUTH. OH. THAT MEANS WHAT I SAY IN MY WORD, MY TEACHING, HAS TO HAVE PRECEDENCE OVER YOUR FEELINGS. OVER WHAT YOU THINK IS PRACTICAL, OVER PUBLIC OPINION, OVER THE OPINION OF YOUR FRIENDS, OVER THE OPINION OF THE EXPERTS. I HAVE TO BE THE TRUTH, JESUS SAYS. And then he laughs, he says, I'm the way. Not a way. I'm the only way. And that, oh man, the world can't stand that. You know, they say, what about the good Buddhist? What about the good person that doesn't isn't part of an organized religion? What about them? How could Jesus say that I'm the the only way to the Father? But see, folks, that's the way it is with people. Don't you see? You cannot find your way into a person any way you choose. You have to be let in from the inside. And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. God defines the parameters, not people. And the world hates it. This world is committed that there's no such thing as truth from the outside or above from this world. The world says, I feel this to be right for me and my family, so how dare you say that I'm doing it wrong? And you, believer, coming with your Bible in hand, gently, humbly, graciously trying to correct your thinking, and what's the response? You're a bigot. You hate people for who, who they really are. And we will be persecuted when we shine the truth of God's word on the sin of mankind. And furthermore, they hate you because you don't put the agenda, their agenda, first. You don't put the firm first. You don't put the company first. You don't put the the race first. You don't put the political party first. You can't. You know why? Because there's a Lord and there's a judgment to come. There's truth. And it isn't defined by this world. And because of this, the world says it cannot trust you because the company doesn't own you now. The race doesn't own you. The the political party doesn't own you. And the world wants many ways, many truths, and many types of life. They want a broad and easy way, but that's not the gospel. Jesus says to us in this chapter that I have radically changed you. Your citizenship has changed, you have moved away from your homeland. I AM THE VINE, YOU ARE THE BRANCHES. I HAVE CUT OFF YOUR ROOTS IN THIS WORLD, AND I HAVE PLANTED YOU IN ME. AND YOU ARE RADICALLY DIFFERENT THAN THEM. I HAVE CUT OFF YOUR ROOTS FROM YOUR RACE. I HAVE CUT OFF YOUR ROOTS FROM YOUR POLITICAL PARTY. IT IS NO LONGER THE THING THAT NOW DEFINES YOU. I HAVE CUT OFF YOUR ROOTS TO YOUR SOCIAL CLASS, YOUR JOB, YOUR INCOME, YOUR HOUSE. THEY NO LONGER DEFINE YOU. I AM THE VINE, YOU ARE THE BRANCHES. YOUR LIFE IS IN ME, NOT IN THIS WORLD. Your your citizenship has moved overseas. And this is why the world can't understand us and why the world will not trust us because we're no longer like them. We are so different that they cannot understand us and they can't grasp what's happening. And because of that, they're fearful and they lash out. Well, the second reason why the world hates us is because Jesus reveals sin. says in verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for sin. For whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. You remember earlier as I read John Chapter 3, verse 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. This world loves darkness. They desire to hide in the dark. They, They don't want their evil deeds exposed. Just like the child that I heard of this week from friends on Facebook who was disciplined. His mom and dad punished him for something and is not able to look at a digital device for a week. Well, he being a child and not saved, concocted a story one day at school that he was sick. So his mom went to the school, picked him up, and although she had to work, so she dropped him off at her mom's house, his grandmother's house, to watch him. And later in the evening, many hours later, when the grandmother had uh, dropped him back off at home, was looking for her Kindle. Couldn't find it. Searched the entire house. She found it hidden in the bathroom, battery dead, where the grandson spent many hours during the day sick, why was he in the bathroom for hours? He was sick. No. He was locked in the bathroom watching the digital device for hours, hiding his wickedness, his sin of disobedience. He didn't want to be exposed. He, he dare not do that in, in plain sight. He hid. Jesus came to expose the sin of the world. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. In Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin. Now, what is Jesus saying here? It's not, that, it's not like they were innocent before Jesus was there because that contradicts many of the passages that we see in the word, but, but that now they can never say that they didn't reject Jesus in his earthly ministry. They are guilty of the sin of rejecting Jesus to his face. Jesus is saying they looked right at God and they wanted nothing to do with him. And then they take him and his truth and they nail him to a cross. That is what the world thinks of God. See, the world isn't doing anything new that than what it did when Jesus walked the earth. Nothing has changed. They still hate the truth. And they hate those that proclaim truth because when the truth is proclaimed, when it's taught, they feel the weight of conviction in their soul and they want it removed. So how do we respond to this? Maybe we haven't faced it yet, but we will. How do we respond to this hate? Well, that's my last point here, our response to it. The first point of that is that we witness. Verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I praise God for sending us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. I cannot imagine a world where there wasn't spirit-indwelled people. And Jesus promises the disciples again that the Spirit is coming. And we'll get to that next week, Lord willing, in chapter 16. And his job as the Spirit is to bear witness about the truth of the gospel, and he's doing that in us. And then we have a challenge there. We are to bear witness to the world about God. The word witness here in the Greek is the same word that we have for martyr. And that's comforting, right? Jesus says, you also will be martyred because you have been with me. These men who have been with Jesus these three years would die as martyrs. They would give their lives for the Savior. Put yourself in their position in this moment. You know, the hits just keep on coming in these chapters. Jesus is going to leave, and Judas betrays them all, and Peter denies, and, and now now they're going to be martyred. They're going to be killed. You know, we will die in other ways too. Our careers may be killed. Our dreams may be killed. Our comfort may be killed, all because we stand with God and the gospel. And why would the world do this? Because we stand and dare say that they're dying, that the world is dying, and we have the antidote. We have the medicine that will cure their deepest ills, and we tell them, you need Jesus. AND WHEN WE CONFRONT SOMEONE WITH THE GOSPEL, WE'RE TELLING THEM THAT THEIR FORMER WAY OF LIFE WAS WRONG. YOU ARE CONFRONTING THEM WITH THE LIE THAT THEY HAVE BELIEVED. YOU COME AND SAY YOU ARE WEAK AND YOU'RE PRIDEFUL, THINKING THAT YOU CAN SAVE YOURSELF. YOU CAN'T. YOU NEED JESUS. AND THEY DON'T WANT TO HEAR IT. YOU KNOW, THE BIBLE TELLS US THAT WE AS CHRISTIANS ARE SALT. YOU KNOW, THAT SALT IS A PRESERVATIVE. And salt is also a healing agent. And Christians are salt in the world, but when you put salt in a wound, it stings as it heals. stings a lot, right? See, the gospel stings as it heals. It's always true. I read a great illustration this week of a pastor on his way to church one day. And he saw a poor little animal running around in panic because his little animal had its, its head stuck in a cocoa can trying to get a few grains of, of sweet things at the bottom, I'm sure. And now he couldn't get his head free. And he was running around frantically, the pastor sees it. And, and the pastor says, but well, what an interesting sermon illustration. Isn't this just like the world trying to get a few goodies and now you got your head stuck in a can? And now you're in a panic and, and you can't see where you're going well, let look at this poor little thing. I have to do something. And so he, he, he stops and goes towards it, and, he, and he's about to reach over and realize that the animal stuck is a skunk. <laughs> and he realized in that moment he had a very difficult decision to make. <laughs> it's probable that that skunk would not think it's being liberated as it's being freed from the can, so what do you do? This is what Jesus is saying to us. I will send you out to this world, and they will hate you for my sake, for the gospel. And what do you do in that situation? You know, in the situation with the skunk, you know, don't be a fool, you get downwind. And don't be a coward, you just pull. They will hate the gospel, and they may hate you for bringing it to them. That's the conflict. That's the, the, the hatred there. There's hostility there, and there's opposition. Sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's covert, but Jesus says to expect it. If we live in Jesus, if we live in a way, John 15 verses 1 through 17 say, if we live this way, if we live in him, abide in him, abide in his love, then we'll be faithful in this gospel proclamation. We should expect opposition. We should expect Hate. That leads to the the next point there, the last point. We need to be ready. Flowing into chapter 16, because I believe the chapter break should be later. So we're gonna do the first four verses there. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you Will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you remember that I told them to you. Do you feel at home right now? I mean, we live in a prosperous country, very prosperous. In fact, I was just telling a friend yesterday I bought a home a year ago and my home value has just skyrocketed in a year. I didn't do anything. We live in a prosperous country. America's good, right? I mean, we finally got a Republican president. We're good. <laughs> Things are normal now. And hey, wonder if we've fallen into a land of complacency. It's normal to have privileges. It's normal to be respected. It's normal to build whatever we want and to get permits and permission with no serious holdups. It's normal to buy real estate and expand our ministry as we see fit. It's normal to live peaceably in our neighborhood. It's normal to coach a t-ball team. And have no opposition. It's normal to pray at the 50 yard line following a football game. That's normal. It's normal to be respected by the society. It's normal to maybe not always initiate change in our society, but at least we have veto power when things go haywire. It's normal to drive up to church and come this morning unharassed. It's normal to tell our neighbors that we're part of a church and not get reported to the police. And when we don't get our normal Christianity in America, we're going to let people know. We get angry when, we, when you treat my Christianity as if it's not normal. How dare you not think highly of my Christian views? You're taking away my culture. You're taking away my land. Don't you know this land? This country was founded by Christians. How dare you? I'm mad. I'm going to let you know. I'm going to boycott. Yes, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sign a petition and another petition and another petition. I'm going to raise my concerns online. I'm going to have my voice because you've taken away my normal and that's not right. This is normal. This is America. Don't you understand this? You see, folks, the world is not looking for a time when Christians will have more power or have greater influence. They don't want that. Frankly, friends, we never had it. We don't need to return to a righteous America because there never has been one. The time of imagining that we as Christians were a majority is over because it was never true. People might say that we're living in a post Christian America, but that isn't true. The only way that you can say it's true is if you define Christianity like a, a liberal Episcopalian does. But if you define Christianity like John chapter 3 does, then America has always been one birth short of Christianity. We don't live in a Christian America. We live in a world that is ruled by the prince of the power of the Air, with his sons of disobedience. This is our country. This is our world. And we may not be persecuted right now, but... It won't always be this way. Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. That They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And he's preparing them for what's to come to them. And church, we are not promised an easy life and we're not promised a peaceful death. But we are promised a Christ-filled eternity. And I want to encourage you parents sitting here. You need to talk about this with your kids. Because the hour may come when our children or our grandchildren will have to reach back in the reservoir of their memories, of their faith. And know that God is still present in the midst of their current persecution. And Jesus is very purposeful here in his teaching for the disciples. This prophecy, like every other prophecy in scripture, was fulfilled to the very letter. The book of Acts shows us how the unbelieving Jews persecuted the early Christians. And our church history books open up for us to show how the early reformers were burned at the stake for the religion. And they were burned to the stake by men and women, who, in their zeal, thought they were offering service to God by their brutal killing of godly men. You know that this is the year of the anniversary of the Reformation—five hundred years—and I want to end this morning by sharing a story that illustrates this prophecy here. Many of you know. Queen Mary, ascending to the throne of England in 1553. In the subsequent four years, she had at least 288 Christian people put to death. Four years, 288. Often, they were burned at the stake for their religious convictions. And to history, she's become known as Bloody Mary the world celebrates it with a drink. And in truth, she killed far fewer people per year than her brutal father, but it was the godliness of many of her victims that make her stand out. Mary's father, King Henry VIII, had separated the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church, but he had not reformed the church's practices or doctrines. And on Henry's death, his young son Edward became king. AND MANY OF EDWARD'S ADVISORS TRIED TO MOVE THE ENGLISH CHURCH INTO A DIRECTION OF A a MORE BIBLE-BASED CHRISTIANITY. AND TWO SUCH MEN WERE NICHOLAS RIDLEY AND HUGH LATIMER. THE SCHOLAR NICHOLAS RIDLEY HAD BEEN A CHAPLAIN TO KING HENRY VIII AND WAS BISHOP OF LONDON UNDER HIS SON EDWARD. HE WAS A PREACHER BELOVED OF HIS CONGREGATION WHOSE VERY LIFE PORTRAYED THE TRUTHS OF THE CHRISTIAN DOCTRINES THAT HE TAUGHT. IN HIS HOUSEHOLD HE DAILY HAD BIBLE READINGS AND ENCOURAGED SCRIPTURE MEMORY AMONG HIS PEOPLE. And then Hugh Latimer also became an influential preacher under King Edward's reign. He was an earnest student of the Bible, and as Bishop of Worcester, he encouraged the scriptures to be known in English by the people. And his sermons emphasized that men should serve the Lord with a true heart and an inward affection, not just with an outward show. And Latimer's personal life was also reinforced by his preaching. He was renowned for his works, especially his visitation to many prisons. WHEN MARY BECAME QUEEN OF ENGLAND, SHE WORKED TO BRING ENGLAND BACK TO THE ROMAN CATHOLIC CHURCH. IN ONE OF HER VERY FIRST ACTS AS QUEEN, SHE ARRESTED BISHOP RIDLEY AND BISHOP LATIMER, AND ALSO ARCHBISHOP THOMAS CRANER. AND AFTER SERVING TIME IN THE TOWER OF LONDON, THE THREE WERE TAKEN TO OXFORD IN SEPTEMBER OF 1555 TO BE EXAMINED BY THE LORD'S COMMISSIONER IN OXFORD'S DIVINITY SCHOOL. And when Ridley was asked if he believed the Pope was the heir to the authority of Peter as the foundation of the church, he replied that the church was not built on any man, but on the truth Peter confessed. That Christ was the Son of God. And Ridley said he could not honor the Pope in Rome since the papacy was seeking its own glory and not the glory of God. Neither Ridley nor Latimer could accept the Roman Catholic's Mass as a continual sacrifice of Christ. And Latimer told the commissioners, Christ made one offering and sacrifice for the sins of the whole world and that a perfect sacrifice neither needeth there to be nor can there be any propitiary sacrifice. And these opinions were deeply offensive to the Roman Catholic theologians. The day of their death was October 16, 1555. Latimer stood at the stake in Oxford. Dr. Ridley and fire was putting to the pile of wood. He raised his eyes kindly towards heaven and said, God is faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able? And his body was forcibly penetrated by the fire. And the blood flowed abundantly from his heart as if to verify his constant desire that his heart's blood might be shed in defense of the gospel. And as as he was being tied to the stake, Ridley prayed, Oh, Heavenly Father, I give unto thee most heartily thanks that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee, even unto death. And I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all her enemies. Ridley's brother, trying to show kindness, had brought some gunpowder for the men to place around their necks so that death could come more quickly. But even so, Ridley suffered greatly. And with a loud voice, Ridley cried, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. But the wood was green and burned only Ridley's lower parts without touching his upper body. He was heard to repeatedly call out, Lord, have mercy on me. I cannot burn. Let the fire come into me, Lord. I cannot burn. One of the bystanders finally brought the flames to the top of the pyre to hasten Ridley's death. It was said by another Bystander, that they received the flame as if they were embracing it. Latimer died much more quickly as the flames rose quickly. And Latimer encouraged Ridley, quote, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust, should never be put out. I read stories like this in Fox's books of martyrs and J.C. Ryle's book on, on the four reformers, and I feel like my persecution is so pathetic. And I share this story with you this morning, church, because we're, always just one generation away from this happening. One generation away from our kids suffering the same fate as these men in the 1500s. Will will we be ready for this? Will, Will they be ready for this? Charles Spurgeon said, Never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. The ship of the church never sails so gloriously along as when the bloody spray of her martyrs fall on the deck. We must suffer and we must die if we're ever to conquer this world for Christ. If we're close to Jesus, if we're obedient to his word, this world will hate us. We're not of the world. They, They hate us. The world says you're either with us or you're against us. And now at the age of 39, I read John 15 much differently than I did as a kid. Things are different now for me. What about you? What about our church? Do we expect or do we desire that this world will love us as a church? It will accept us? The only way that will happen is if we're like the world. We will only be accepted if we leave the scriptures and follow them. I'm not willing to do that. Are you? The world never burned a casual Christian on the stake. So I say farewell to the utopia. Farewell to my euphoria. Farewell to the suburban daydream. Farewell to the earthly paradise. I I don't want to be a comfort driven, entertainment addicted, security seeking, approval desiring Christian that looks for my identity in this world. I I don't want to waste my life just trying to fit into this world. And I'm praying that you don't either. Let's pray. Father, I come before your throne this morning and I, I thank you for difficult texts like this this morning in John 15. A sobering text. And God, I realize we all maybe do that we're living in a very calm, Culture right now. But I also recognize that I could turn at any moment. And I don't want to be, and I don't want our church to be so comfortable in this world that we'll be shocked when persecution starts. And God, I I come and I realize in a text like this that you've allowed myself and many people in this room to bring children into this world. And you've entrusted them to us to love them, to train them, to fill them up with the gospel that they would be saved that they would love you, that they would be abiding in you. We recognize that you may send some of our kids to places in this world that are not peaceful, that are downright hostile to Christianity, much more so than in America. And I ask, I beg that you would help us to train our kids to love you more than the fear of staying back. Help us as parents, as grandparents, as family to release our kids to serve you wherever you take them. Help us as as this congregation, as this family, to not be so comfortable, so fearful of opposition that we we just stay back. Help us to be bold. Help us to be close to you, abiding in you, remaining in you, and to be faithful, to step out to share this gospel truth because this world so desperately needs to hear it. God, help us not to hoard it to ourselves. Help us to give it away. Just to release it, God. You, we know that you do the work of transformation in people's lives. Help us to not realize it depends on us, but we just release the gospel. Help us to be faithful in that, God. Help us to love you in this way. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen.